Hey folks, Frank here. Before we start the episode, I just wanted to acknowledge the delay we've had in releasing episodes this past year. Um, Caleb and I were going through some stuff, not with each other, just stuff, but I can confidently say that 2023 is the year that we get back in the groove and you can be expecting a return to more semi-normally scheduled programming. As can happen with a many months delay between recording and then releasing an episode, our guest today, Omari Averett Phillips, has actually got some exciting projects going on that didn't make it into the plug section of this episode back when we recorded it. So since recording this episode with us, Omari has actually booked his own podcasting gig with the New Books Network, where he interviews historians about recent publications in the African American studies field. As you'll hear in the episode, Omari is a really thoughtful guy, and he's great on the mic. Um, those are excellent interviews that he's putting together with New Books Network, so I really encourage you to check out his show. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, okay, that's that on that. On with the show. Welcome to Best Adapted Podcast, the podcast about film adaptations and the stories that inspired them. I am your host, Caleb. With me, as always, is my 300-pound Samoan lawyer's 300-pound Samoan lawyer, uh, Frank Meyer. Frank, how are you? <laughs> I was just reading that. Apparently, there was a major dust-up about like the characterization of, of Oscar as, as Samoan, so... But I will, I will, I'll wear the, I'll wear the label gladly. We'll see if that gets me in trouble down the road. But um, uh, <laughs> Caleb, we got a fantastic fucking guest today. Um, he is a labor organizer and journalist and educator and scholar, and uh, recently a high roller after a very successful run in Vegas just two weeks ago. It's Omari <laughs> Phillips. How you doing, Omari? I am good. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to chat about this. I, I thought I would get labeled the 300-pound Samoan lawyer, <laughs> uh, which would get me in a lot of trouble with people that I went to high school with. So I'm glad that you're taking that as opposed to me. So yeah, I can't yeah. take them. I don't think you can either. But we'll see, if it, we'll see if it makes it to the final cut. I One time, I get, I'm, right now I'm doing kind of separate spheres of the podcast and the scholar life, and I... I referred to long deceased actress Lauren Bacall's a smoke show in an early episode, and I was like, maybe that was <laughs> towing the line. So, um, I had an ex girlfriend who used to refer to uh, other girls as like smoke shows, and uh, recently, uh, within like the last like year, two years, came out as bi, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I saw that one coming. Where yeah. there's smoke, there's fire. Exactly. exactly. All right. <laughs> Um, Omari, before we go in too much on like on, on Hunter S. Thompson and today's movie, I, I know that you were a, have been a high school teacher before, and I wanted to ask if you are one of those cool high school teachers who showed movies in class ever. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, that's the easiest lesson plan, right? Like, <laughs> like let me get this movie on like on YouTube. You guys can watch it or not watch it, one or the other. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a great way. I feel like to to sort of like get get the attention of students. A lot of times, I used to show. Um, uh, Raising the Sun a lot, uh, so like the Sydney Porte version, sure. and kids would go fucking wild for the like flaming spear <laughs> portion, and I was just like right there with them. And then there was always the kids that were just like, I don't get it, and I was like, That's cool, you fail. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's always fun to do that, and I, I I sort of enjoy it. I think it's a different medium. 
uh, for students, especially, you know, they want to be on their phones all the time. It's something that's in front of them and works a little bit better. So I, I would do that. I never really did the like, you know, like seeing on the desk and like throwing the book in the trash and being like, you know, Mr. Averett Phillips was my dad. I never did that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, mainly because, you know, I have a hyphenated last name and that's from marriage and then the other one's from slavery. So it's whatever. Um, but uh, I did. I, I was the cool teacher that everyone liked because I just did not bullshit them and oftentimes would curse in class on accident. I shouldn't say this because it might affect my job prospects in the future. That's but <laughs> I'm, I'm about to ask you an, an, an even more damning question, oh, which shit. is the classic move of a teacher throwing on a movie is because they're hungover. Did you ever do it after a Thompson-esque Bacchanal? Uh, you know, <laughs> a pint in and... Uh... <laughs> I, I, I never get hungover. That's like when I serve my thing. I can drink as much as I want and never get hungover. Uh, what would happen a lot of times is that I would have like, you know, planned out sort of a lesson and then just basically I should also, this needs to be edited out too, just did not want to do it. So I was like, I don't really want to deal with it. So let's just like show a movie or show a video clip. And then basically my go-to was like, so what did you get from that? Right. And like hope that there was a discussion that would happen and like pick up on the few things that they would say that had nothing to do with anything and make jokes about like TikTok and stuff of that sort until the kids actually started talking. Um, so yeah, no, not, not, not after, not after getting, not after being hungover, um, but definitely because I was just tired as a human being. Have either of you ever seen the, the the Edward Zwick movie Glory about uh like the all black regiment in the Union? I watched I that like twenty times sad. when I was in when I was like in school. Like every single time we had a it didn't matter what class too, like even for like math class if we had a sub, it was like here's Glory. And it was like, I don't know what this has to do with the Pythagorean theorem, but sure. Um, yeah, 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 we, we had, had to watch, watch it a ton. ton. Yeah. I had it shown to me once and it was like the the Pepsi edit. Like it was literally like it was um they had cut out like the violent parts so it was educational in movies but there was an advertisement for Pepsi at the beginning <laughs> kind of a bad movie although maybe like maybe the non Pepsi maybe the maybe the Coca Cola edit is better I don't know I think it's fair to say that uh, Edward Zick director of The Last Samurai and other cinematic masterpieces is uh, a fucking hack and <laughs> should not be trusted with making films about race relations in 1863. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, tune in next week. We'll have him on the pod to be talking about uh, Free and Loathing in Las Vegas. He is active on Twitter. I uh, I see his posts not infrequently, and they are the worst shit you've ever seen. Anyway. Uh, we also uh, had to watch... But we, uh, on. we had to watch Rosewood a lot, too. Uh, oh, I'm not sure if you guys... Are, wow. Yeah, and uh, like we were all in like middle school, and it was just a lot of like everybody looking around. Well, like, I was like the only black kid in the class, so everybody's looking at me, but I'm looking around just like, are we okay to be watching this? Like, <laughs> lots of people are being lynch. I'm not sure if this is what we're supposed to be doing right now. Again, in any subject, that, it did not matter. That is f- fascinating, because I feel like that is a movie that doesn't exist in like i mean i've in in sort of the suburban white consciousness i mean i i like i frankly did not know it existed until six months ago um never saw it um so that was played to you in school in what sounds like a predominantly white environment how (laughs) 
that's uh, fucking, fucking wild. wild. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as, like, you know, when, like, slavery is brought up in classes. Even now, when slavery is brought up in classes, uh, where, like, everyone sort of turns to me, like, is this what happened? And it's like, how 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 am I supposed to know? Like, what, what, like... Why don't you ask your grandparents? Like, why are you why are you asking me these questions? Right? Like, I don't know. Like, I've yeah. I've grown up in Long Beach. I don't know what this is like. Um, yeah, it's just like you know the idea of like the the other in the class must have some sort of knowledge upon this in some way. The other on the podcast must have some knowledge about our movie today, which is the where the buffalo roam. <laughs> uh, our first. Uh, I'm sorry, Amari. That might have been like way too far. No, nah, you're all good. You're all good. No, okay. that was funny. That was funny. <laughs> all right, listen to that, listeners. Amari said it was okay. So, um, uh, okay, so we're beginning our Hunter S. Thompson miniseries on uh, the adaptations of Hunter S. Thompson's work, Gonzo journalism, and how it gets translated into film. Um, Amari, you have worked as a journalist before. I understand, like. Do you have a strong relationship with, with Hunter Thompson? Do you, is he an inspiration or a, a whatever the opposite of an inspiration is, adversary to your to your work? Or uh, definitely not an, advers- an adversary at all. I mean, it's it. I mean, I don't think you can know journalism without like knowing Hunter S. Thompson, right? I mean, it's sort of like this idea of sort of new journalism, this like Gonzo journalism. I mean, to back up just for you know listeners that are out there, like I worked as a freelance journalist for about a year or so. I wrote um, political op-eds for a website called uh, Movie Trailer Reviews. Shout out to Chris and Deepalm that will not listen to this, I'm sure. Um, but they are out there somewhere. Uh, I also did some training with the Ida B. Wells Society. Uh, shout out to Ron Nixon and Nicole Hannah-Jones who helped train me during that. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think what like gonzo journalism to me is about is really just sort of about telling the truth. Um, I don't mean truth in terms of like the absolute truth. I, I I won't get into my politics about how I don't believe that there is no such thing as truth. But journalism, I feel like has and I feel like still does try to do this thing of like being objective and sort of like reporting the quote unquote facts, right? Um, With sides. Exactly, right. And like, you know, facts are not, you know, weighed in that way, right? Like what happens and what people perceive and what they find is always so different, right? And from the beginning of time with from the beginning of time I sound like an undergrad from like the beginning of like <laughs> of journalism there's always been this like bias within it right like, again like facts don't necessarily care about how you feel they're not necessarily interested in both sides of things and so I feel like this new wave of journalism that came what like Hunter S Thompson did so well was really understanding that you know the subject within a lot of these stories has like or sorry let me back up the reporter the journalist within all of these stories has always been a subject right you would usually see these things coming from op-eds a lot of times from editors like even going back as far as like frederick Douglass, he would have op-eds within, within like sort of the north star within like frederick Douglass newspaper where he's giving his opinion right and that sort of tilts the way that you're thinking about a lot of these facts and so what Hunter S. Thompson did was sort of reject this idea of object of sort of objectivity of trying to sort of be uh, apart from the story and put himself right in the middle of the story. And then you can sort of figure out from how it is that he's writing it, what it is that he's writing, which way it is that you want to actually lean. Right. But he's, he's giving you himself as part of the subject, the subject that's actually in that story. Um, and so it's really just sort of a change in that that's sort of, come to that in a different way, I feel like, than people before him had in terms of, like, trying to be as honest as possible about the fact that 
yes, I have an opinion. Yes, I am with these people. Yes, I am reporting what they're saying. And now you can take from this and sort of figure out what it is that you want, as opposed to me trying to act as though I'm being impartial in some way. Um, and I think that we still see that now in journalism in so many different ways. Like, you know, we have podcasts that tend to do this a lot of times to ins where people are inserting themselves into the story, right? We have people like Nicole Hannah-Jones who are inserting themselves into the story all the time and what it is that they're writing. Um, and I don't think that we necessarily get there without Hunter S. Thompson. Well, Hunter S. Thompson, it's, I think it's not just that he sort of rejects uh, this notion of objectivity, but almost seems to, in his writing and researching process, prevent himself from doing so because he really immeshed, he gets, he develops these really personal relationships with the figures of his story. Often he is, or at least the sort of mythos around him is that he's often like on drugs. And so he couldn't even, like his testimony would not work in a court of law. And yet it does hold weight as like a journalistic uh, impression of it. Um, uh, I think what is also important is it is not only that he rejects the notion of objectivity, he also kind of rejects the role of the reporter as a reporter, as someone who just relays information, he is often an instigator. Um, so if he, for example, I think most famously in his book on the on the Hell's Angels, um, he notices something violent and unseemly about sort of that countercultural movement. And instead of just relaying that information, he tries to bring it out to the forefront by essentially picking fights. Um, and he does the same thing when he's covering uh, the Nixon re-election campaign in 72. Uh, he is he is rejecting the, in, in, a, in a way that I think now feels, I mean, we're a film god podcast, feels very Ver, uh, Werner Herzogian. He's not documenting what is happening. He is coming into a situation with a point of view um, and then kind of reshaping the world around it to sort of bring truth to light, I, I think is the way that he would see um, what he is doing. I uh, am, I, I myself, I am, I am a journalist. I work for the Stadius publication uh, in the universe. Daily Wire. <laughs> That's right. No, uh, I, I work for a legal news publication that caters to conservative corporate lawyers. So I think I would be fired for even uh, mentioning that I had seen his name in print ever. Um, but I, my f first run-ins with Hunter S. Thompson were in the, I was, um, a sports guy growing up. I, I, I watched a lot of sports, a lot of baseball, a lot of football, a lot of basketball. And in the early 2000s, when I was, you know, in my early teens, um, he had a column on ESPN's page two, which was their sort of web only magazine. Um, and at that point, I mean, he was... I mean, he was, this was just before he died. He was much older. He mostly wrote about horse racing and football. Um, and I didn't quite grasp him. I was frankly more interested in someone who would probably describe himself as, uh, as an acolyte of Hunter S. Thompson, which is Bill Simmons, um, because he mostly wrote about football and basketball and blackjack and how uh, his friend's girlfriends were all uh, shrill and flat-chested and didn't even fuck good, um, to be perfectly clear of where I was coming from uh, in 2008. But so I didn't, I didn't catch on to him immediately. But I think that is also kind of important to think about, about Hunter S. Thompson is he was a countercultural voice. He did, uh, was a, a groundbreaking journalist. And I think this the movie touches on it a little bit. But at the end of the day, he always had 
institutional support. Um, he always, I mean, his his relationship with with um, with uh, uh, Jan, I'm forgetting his name, Jan Wenner, uh, and and Rolling Stone broke down in the late 70s, but he still worked for Sports Illustrated for years after that. Uh, he had his books. He was very wealthy. Um, I so he. I don't know. I've been thinking. I I watched Putney Swope. Oh hell yeah! A, a while ago, and there's that line where a character says, "I'm against the establishment and the anti-establishment establishment," and I think that's kind of where Hunter S. Thompson is. Is he's sort of the anti-establishment establishment? But maybe I'm completely wrong. What do you guys think? I think that's pretty fair. I mean, and that's maybe one. I'm getting a little head talk about the movie, but that's I think one layer that it doesn't kind of get into is, and even like if you watch like documentaries about Hunter S. Thompson or the way that he's kind of mythologized, there isn't really a clear narrative on his relationship with news publications and how he kind of, you know, basically like had his debauchery subsidized for lack of a better term by this whole like media outlet that was, that was rising. And the sort of weird place in Rolling Stone is like the record keeper and archive of a bunch of his writing now. And yet, like, if you look at a Rolling Stone magazine, it seems to be very antithetical to the kind of writing that Hunter S. Thompson was putting out at the time. Um, yeah, he's, I don't know, but like, this is, this is the press, right? Like it has to be someone who's a little bit on, I know we've just talked about how there's an old notion is the press or the journalist needs to be enmeshed into these communities that they're writing about and they need to dispense with objectivity, but like they have to also be like an outsider on the inside. That's sort of their role, right? To communicate to, to the broader group. I, I just, I, I think, I mean, I just, I think sort of the, um, I think this is the sort of the, uh, the kind of frat bro lionization of, of Hunter S. Thompson is, is real. And I think much of the attention that he gets now, I think mostly focuses on his penchant for debauchery rather than his, rather than his sort of deconstruction of, uh, of truth, um, as a well, well, I was thinking of this idea of like the celebrity journalist as well while I, when I was watching this movie because I think more so than other journalists, Hunter S. Thompson himself has actually become more famous than any one thing he ever wrote. And to an extent, I think that's true of a lot of, of these like famous journalists and like, you know, when Bob Woodward says he's writing a Trump book, everyone's like, oh my God, he's going to Watergate him or whatever. But the Watergate investigation is always going to be just a little bit more famous than Bob Woodward. You know, all the president's men is always going to be like a piece of writing that kind of contributes more to the world than he does. But like Hunter S. Thompson has come to represent a lifestyle, you know, and this like personality that goes with it that sort of outpaces his writing. I don't know, Omari, like, have you ever had to like cover or do journalism where you felt like a tension between like being a, I don't know how to, like the sort of this question we'll be talking about with Hunter S. Thompson of like being of, of institutional backing and whether that, like, can you, can you sustain that, that like gonzo investment in like what is going on while you have institutional backing that's kind of asking for stuff from you? Does that question make sense? I've kind of, kind of Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I feel like I feel that tension a lot. I, I have felt that tension quite a bit. I mean, uh, again, like I was talking in sort of the pre-record, like I, I, the work that I do particularly like focuses upon black people and upon the ideas that black people have and sort of the, the tension that black people sort of ex- have within America and sort of some of the ideals of America. Um, and so I've, it, it feels weird when I was first starting off and sort of writing some of these like op-eds I would do, it, it would feel weird even publishing sort of in a like 
black journal sort of like like blavity like i did it felt weird sort of bringing up these sort of ideas of you know this is the problem here's how we need to address it mm. with this sort of institutional backing of even blavity which is like for black people sort of these these people that are like yes yes and we're gonna put this out there and all of these people are gonna see it and we have a few edits that we want you to make around here so if you could change sure. that part right so it it i feel like that tension is always there uh in things i've written and even now, sort of in grad school, the tension is there a lot of times of the idea of like, I am very anti the way that sort of that a lot of these institutions are built and the way in which they sort of use people and sort of gatekeep. And it, it becomes, uh, it becomes a tension to then also understand that like you, you're still trying to fit within this in some way, right? Even if you're trying to change it, you're still trying to find your way within so that you can actually change it. Um, and I think that that's just the tension that's always there, I think, when you're trying to do something that's different or when you're trying to do something that you care about that might not necessarily be completely in line with the way that an establishment sort of wants to address it. So, yeah, definitely. Do we want to talk about the the source text now or or do we have more? No, I think that's like a good, I think that's a good place to leave it on Thompson. Um, so today's movie, Where the Buffalo Roam from 1980, it's based on kind of a smattering of writings by Hunter S. Thompson, but the two sort of articles that feature prominently in it are, and that seem to be kind of the most straightly pulled from the stress text are Strange Rumblings in Aztlan. I realize I don't know how to pronounce this word. A-Z-T-L-A-N. Is it Aztlan? Aztlan? Aztlan. Aztlan? That's pathetic that I don't know how to say that word. It's, it's a California thing, mostly. Or at least for me, it's been a very California thing. And, and the other one has such a long name, I want to make sure I like get it totally right. Uh, the grant the banshee screams for buffalo meat yes yeah so these are both of these articles deal with hunter s thompson's relationship with oscar zeta acosta who's this chicano activist and lawyer and a writer in his own right um who ends up having this very like outsized and important role in hunter s thompson's writing he's kind of a prominent character in both fear and loathing in las vegas and then just sort of different articles that he would write about his work um Acosta was a, as I mentioned, this kind of Chicano activist and lawyer in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. He becomes involved in... I believe it's Los Angeles. I believe LA. In LA? Okay. okay. He's a, a, a Chicano activist and lawyer in Los Angeles. Um, I don't know if it's his first run-in that they have when they when he writes the the uh, Bad Times in Aztlan, but like, there... As, I don't know. To me, I'm one of the parallels I've been trying to tease out in the way Hunter S. Thompson writes about this guy is he draws, I think, a lot of parallels between him and Nixon, weirdly enough, as these two like kind of sleazy figures who are both coming from a law background. But one has had this sort of meteoric rise through California being Nixon, where even though he commits kind of criminality over his whole career, he works his way into the presidency by dispense by like basically uh ignoring the truth or like pursuing dishonesty. And on the other side is Acosta as this um, committed idealistic and also like semi-criminal or just like fully criminal lawyer who kind of like gets himself into trouble and becomes like uh, this sort of mysterious outlaw figure. Um, I've, I've never been able to pierce out exactly like how real he's supposed to be and how much like we gain from Hunter S. Thompson turning him into like a mythic figure down to stuff like saying he's a 300 pound Samoan lawyer when Oscar Acosta is not even Samoan. I think the Banshee screams for Buffalo meat kind of represents Hunter S. Thompson's sort of 
attempt to demythologize him. This is the obituary that he wrote in in Rolling Stone after uh, Acosta mysteriously disappeared and was very very likely murdered. Um, and if he, to be clear, I don't think his body was ever found. Um, but he he does he kind of grapples with that. He he you know during the over the course of writing this he he hears two stories about. Acosta reappearing in in Miami. Um, in some way, there is he is remarking on on his own propensity to play fast and loose with the truth in order to get the truth. Um, the way that sort of the idea of Acosta has kind of transcended his his physical body. But I think in that obituary, it does lay down uh, the facts very sincerely. And I actually think this is a pretty masterful obituary and i think in in a sense scathing and self-aware uh of the way of of what radicalism meant in the late 60s and early 70s and how quickly supposedly radical people himself included abandoned radicalism and radicals such as acosta unstable and difficult as they are the second that it was morally convenient for them to do so no, no, I think that's no, I think that's a great way to put it because it's sort of the I mean, we've talked about how Hunter S. Thompson becomes this institutional figure and becomes as much like a sort of like lifestyle icon more than a writer, arguably, at a certain point in his life. The film adaptations that we're going to cover being, I think, a large part of that that transformation. But no, I think that's a good way to put it, Caleb. Is it is like reading that piece, you get the sense that. Andres Thompson is as much mourning for the loss of like some piece of himself that is in Oscar Acosta, which I think is a part of why, regardless of whether Oscar Acosta is dead or not, at the time that Andres Thompson writes this obituary, it becomes an obituary of this impulse like within himself. You know, he's he's calling it dead, even if he's he's letting Oscar Acosta be this kind of metaphor for a place where he himself is dead. Um, I think because I think Hunter S. Thompson is a bit less of an ideologue than Acosta is at the end of the day. Like he's not an activist and he does, he embodies counterculturism as like a, as a set of like values or behaviors, but like, I don't know. And some of the research I've been doing about him, do you guys know that Hunter S. Thompson ran for sheriff of Aspen while he was living there? Yeah. Yeah. He is this like gun nut who has like a nice house in a mountain town. And like when he runs for office, which to him is like, he loses that election and he's able to turn it into this larger point about like, I lost, you know, to prove that freaks like me can never get elected in this country and the American dream is dead. But like, it's notable that he wants to be a fucking cop, you know, like he wants a job where you walk around with a gun. He's not trying to be mayor. He's not trying to be head of the school board or something. So I don't know. What do you think, Omari? Is, is there maybe like a more of a right wing or is like how counterculture is Hunter S. Thompson exactly? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I feel like my, my initial response is that I, I do think that you're onto something, I think, with the idea of sort of there is some sort of like right wing sort of aspirations there, right? Like I, ideology behind that. I, I do, and this might be controversial to say, but I do f sort of question some of the counterculture ideas and if these are not just sort of as we would sort of think of like sort of libertarian based ideas, right? Like the idea of like just sort of being left alone by the, the feds to be able to do what it is that you want, right? Like I constantly think of that dude in, uh, in Tiger King that talks about like, yeah. Totally. Like, yeah. Like, you know, libertarians are just Republicans that want to smoke weed, right? 
Um, they're just very much for like small government, very much for, you know, like every person on their own and things of that sort. And we see even through the movie, not to like jump ahead, right? That like he is very interested in weapons, <laughs> very, yeah. very interested in guns, right? Um, it, it, it's, yeah, it, it's it's just, inter- I feel like there's like, there are just studies I feel like to be done on like this sort of counterculture move and the way in which some of this might not have been as progressive as I think that like looking back, we want to ascribe it, uh, ascribe sort of ideas to, right? Like, I, I don't know how much this was sort of a new generation sort of reaching back for sort of a sort of Jacksonian dream in some ways and how much of it was actually people trying to progress forward in different ways, right? Um, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson's first piece that he writes about the Kentucky Derby, um, he sort of doesn't even talk about sort of the racial aspects of it, right? He sort of just talks about sort of the decadence of it and the money that's being spent and sort of himself within it. And, you know, writing on deadline, obviously, I'm sure that that sort of had something to do with it. But um, I think even through the movie, we sort of see some of these sort of racial aspects sort of being glossed over and things of that sort. But it's, I think it's a pretty good question. And I think that it's it's one that, you know, that sort of needs more analysis around it, I feel. Yeah, I mean, Thompson sort of, when he writes about these different cultural counterculture groups, whether it is like the Hells Angels or like Chicano activists in LA, he ends up, I feel, he is, he's so invested in the question of alienation and like why young people are attracted to violence and counterculturalism. And again, these questions of alienation, I think he ends up kind of lumping or putting these groups together in similar terms in this weird sort of both sidesism because like, I mean, I love his book on the Hells Angels. I think it is a really brilliant diagnosis of like a lot of impulses that have stayed true in American life and why like the Proud Boys are like this group, like why like why Nazism, why after World War II Nazism remains like really popular in the United States and how it latches itself onto these ideas of like patriotism and like white identity in a specific counterculture like drug, basically how Nazism becomes a non-conservative ideology in a way in the United States. But he sort of has a similar dismissiveness about like Chicano activists and eventually about like aspects of like Acosta's work, I think, as as just like these are people who are attracted to violence, who don't see a place for themselves in the world. And like whether it's Nazism or racial justice, like it's all just some cause that they like wrap up in, which is a total like a false equating to, to me. You know, the movie definitely, I think, to talk about these racial components, the movie well, I mean, like the biggest one in races is Peter Boyle play Acosta as a white guy play this this Chicago lawyer, which is I love Peter Boyle. It was awesome to see him. I think he's good in the movie, but like partly because he isn't really trying to play a certain like racial stereotype or something. He just kind of plays this as a guy, but uh, it's not good off the start. I don't know. Should we kick into the movie? Is there more to say on? One thing to say, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about sort of like lumping this in together, right? Like in Strange Rumblings, he says the difference between a Mexican American and Chicano was the difference between a Negro and a Black, right? And it's like, I'm not necessarily sure that that's accurate, sure. right? Like one is sort of like pulling, is sort of like casting back for like, you know, a a past that actually has a history, whereas like Black is not necessarily the idea of like trying to cast back and trying to like reclaim your history. It's more of the, it's more and 
well, I mean, it's more of sort of a catch-all term, and then also it sort of ignores the idea that, like, lots of, you know, like, older Black people wanted to continue to be called Negroes, right? Like, they wanted to be called color. There were, like, so many different ideas about what it actually could be, whereas Chicano sort of became this sort of rallying cry. Black never really, until you get sort of to the Black power movement, and then it's it's sort of shaky ground even then, right? It never really becomes this, like, rallying cry uh, until that point, and then sort of sporadically as you sort of go through the rest of the 20th century um so i'm not sure how much i sort of agree with that and i think he was trying to make an analogy which i think doesn't necessarily fit i appreciate him trying to sort of create that but i i do think that it's sort of it, it is sort of like lumping in these ideas together a little bit more than he should be so i i think you're i think you're astute that like Hunter S. Thompson like fundamentally can't escape his whiteness um and sort of that outsider identity is helpful in in some aspects and also just will kind of fundamentally dooms him in others but I think one thing that is I think to keep in mind in or in in his treatment and and examination of of radicalism previously on this podcast we covered Inherent Vice which is a text about kind of about how the hippie movement was undermined and sabotaged from without by the forces of conservatism. Um, and I think I, there was a quote that, that Hunter S. Thompson made that I found and lost and can't find again, where he was talking about the sort of the decline of, of the hippie movement, which is essentially sort of the fire of radicalism died in the late seventies. And it, what, what began as kind of a movement to reshape society turned into a way for sort of wayward and privileged white people to uh, to engage in bacchanalia for a little while. And, and sort of he sees it as sort of just sort of decay and collapse from within and a, a loss in the idea of collective effort and sort of falling back on sort of these classic conservative ideas of individualism. Um, that just were taking sort of a leftist um, uh, facade. Um, but yeah, anyway, this is extreme paraphrasing, but I, I don't think he is, um, I don't necessarily think that he is a force for conservatism. I think he very distinctly identified as a leftist and certainly uh, is unwavering in his opposition to sort of the Nixon years. Um but I think also he does not see the decline of American leftism as as a failure because I don't think he saw much good there. This is sort of a maybe this is just a genuinely stupid thought experiment, but there's a I see a lot of connections between Trump's presidency and Nixon with just like outright criminality and like he's like the in particular like how racial tensions are played and dog whistled and not so silently dog whistled or whatever. Do you think that Hunter S. Thompson might fall for Trump just a little bit if his options are between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Like, I don't like I I I feel like he would not come out as as pro Hillary Clinton. Like I I don't know. I can see him being a guy that would rage against cancel culture. I see him as someone who would get upset about mask mandates. Like I just think that he would. Some of his radicalism might like atrophy a little bit, but maybe that's unfair to him. I don't know. Well, I think even very late in life he was. You know, uh, uh, extre- uh, extremely against the Bush presidency, uh, for example, which is not you know the same as Trump. I think he kind of would have fallen into a slightly problematic Bernie guy. Um, is my reading on his politics? Um, 
but I don't know, maybe Omari, you fervently disagree with me. No, I don't. I, I, I feel like that actually makes sense, right? I, I feel like he could see the principles of sort of Bernie's campaign. And then I think, I, I feel like especially the first campaign, um, which did have, you know, some issues. Uh, I won't get into that too much, right? But I, I could totally see him, like, sort of being the genuine, like, this is the change that we want, this is the revolution that we need, and not necessarily hearing some of the criticisms that might be out there around some of these things and just sort of being very excited about, like, these are the principles I've been looking for this my entire life. Yes, I definitely want to do this, as I think a lot of, like, Bernie Sanders people did, um, and just not necessarily wanting to hear the criticisms because they understood like how precarious the the situation was, right? Um, so no, I, I agree with you. I think I think that that sort of lines up. I feel like in a lot of ways, um, I do think uh, Frank, like you were saying, I I, I could t- totally see him sort of being against cancel culture um, for you know different reasons, not necessarily you know the reasons of like, well, this is wrong. We you know you should be able to just do whatever you want whenever you yeah. feel like it, but. Um, sort of against the idea of like, well, this limits people from like expressing themselves in the way that they might want or feel that they need to express themselves, right? Uh, especially when it comes to ideas of creativity and things of that sort. Um, I think the more interesting thought, and this might also might be a stupid sort of thought experiment, where would he stand on someone like Joe Rogan? Mm. I... I think he'd see him as a moron. Okay. I think so. I think, I think okay. that's what I kind of feel like too. I, but I feel like there might be a little like. Uh... I mean, uh, Hunter Thompson did not really like TV people. Like, there's the there's the Conan O'Brien video kind of near the end of interview near the end of his life where you like, it's kind of really fucking depressing because he he it looks like a guy who's realized that the world has really totally become the place he feared it would, and like. He he basically calls uh, Conan O'Brien like an NPC, like but you know obviously he didn't have that word at the time, but like he's like you're one of the jokers with the rest of them too, man. To come back, we have to talk about all let of me, these things. Let me explain one thing to you: yes. that this is the kingdom of fear, as I say here. Oh, and the you book are a perfect example of, of being a victim. You've uh, it's clearly rattled you badly. I am uh, a victim. Yeah. Why? How do you say I'm a victim? How am I a victim? Look at me. I'm happy go lucky. I'm a happy guy. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's good. Uh, fuck, should we talk about this movie already? We've been. Yeah. It's not. It's not like a super dense movie. I think is one of its sort of like it's. It's like a fun approach to Hunter S. Thompson rather than like a super introspective one. Um, it opens in. Can I'm sorry. I have just two two tiny just one note of of pre production. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I totally blew past that. Yeah, yeah, no. It's this film is directed by Art Linson. This was his first ever directorial job. He was a longtime producer in Hollywood, but he bought the or he he optioned um, the Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat for a hundred thousand dollars. The you know the day after it was published, essentially, he thought it was going to be a massive hit. He uh, decided he was going to direct it himself. Uh, he took a four month. Uh, crash course in uh, in direction before right before production began, <laughs> and uh, uh, he hired uh, John Kay to write the script, and um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson and Bill Murray both thought the script was horrible um, and so bad that they rewrote parts of it on set. But uh, uh, Linson thought the film was such a guaranteed hit that he. Um, 
purposefully chose to uh, take no chances uh, with any sort of artistic vision. He just wanted to to have the script play out exactly as written with no visual gags, no no camera moves, no tricky editing, because he thought it was such a guaranteed smash that he didn't want to mess with the formula. And uh, I guess we're going to have some some discussion about whether that gambit paid off. Yeah. Uh, this is before Caddyshack, right? Am I wrong? I think Caddyshack is 82. Okay. And this is 80. I think so. But, oh, same year. Same year. Okay. Okay. Um, so, but this is Bill Murray at, at the height of SNL fame. Right. You know, he's, he's a goddamn movie star. So maybe we should chop into the movie a little bit. So it's, it's a framed story or whatever, like the, 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 the eulogy or the obituary is done as this kind of framing device for Bill Murray playing Hunter S. Thompson to recount like three different vignettes of his encounters with, uh, Oscar Acosta played by Peter Boyle. We open with this Neil Young rendition of Home on the Range, which is kind of fucking awesome. Um, and it has these great shots of like, just like snowy Aspen and the super scratchy scrawl that Howard Stedman, who is Hunter S. Thompson's main illustrator, was gonna kind of make as the style that you would see on all of Hunter S. Thompson's like books and artwork. Um, before we peel into the cabin where this Hunter S. Thompson is firing bullets at his fax machine trying to write out this like obituary for his friend. Um, so I don't think that this scene is very good, but I think Bill Murray is good as Hunter S. Thompson. I'm going to defend him um, in this role. I think he kind of nails the verbal ticks, but more than that, like it's a little bit mismatched because Bill Murray is like a, he's like a relaxed kind of floppy dude. And Hunter S. Thompson is like, kind of a wiry lean guy who sort of looks like a fighter or like a militant in a lot of the footage you see of him. But I, I don't know. Like there is this sort of weird, the, the Bill Murray kind of insistence on absurdity or in just kind of like pushing or pressuring people into making kind of like the, the willingness to call everyone on their bluff is just kind of fucking works for me. I don't know. What do you think of Bill Murray in this movie, Caleb? Yeah. I think that the thing that often people forget about, Hunter S. Thompson, because he did so many drugs and was such a figure of counterculture, is that he began life as a jock. He was like a, a big, tough athlete guy um, for years until essentially he got kicked out of school um, for, you know, being too much of a rebel. So I think that works very well because that is that is Bill Murray is just like a big bully. Um, so I think it is it is very good casting. I think Bill Murray, I mean, I think clearly was hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson and partying with him a lot. Um, I think he's got the imitation down pretty good, but it's a good imitation. Um, but I just, I don't, my problem with this, with this film is not Bill Murray's, uh, embodiment of Hunter. I think it is John Kay's script, which I think, uh, doesn't, is completely uninterested in any of the things that Hunter was interested in. Omari, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think with the Bill Murray like portion, I think it was great casting. I think I I enjoyed his performance. Uh, I I found myself I, I like I'm looking at my notes and uh, I was saying sort of in the pre-record that like I I took notes at different points and at different points was just like I just need to watch this because it's a sort of fever dream. Uh, and 
I don't even know if I mean that in sort of a positive con- connotation or a negative connotation. Uh, I'm not really sure how I feel about the movie as a whole. I don't think it's... It, I, I'm not sure if I think it... I mean, it's not, it's not like so bad it's good, but it's also not great in terms of... Uh, sort of what happens, and I, I agree with the I, with the problems I feel like with the script and whatnot. Um, it's kind of fun though. I feel like there's like there. It's just it's just sort of cuckoo bananas. It's like all over the fucking place. Um, the framing story is strange. Uh, I found myself worried about the the well being of this dog, um, just like in a cabin, like having to like try to dodge bullets and whatnot. Um, and you know, attacking like this caricature of Nixon and whatnot, and it just seemed like this dog was just not having a good time. Yeah, I don't. I, I I'm still sort of torn on if I think it's a good movie or bad. Like I don't know if I would tell anybody to go and watch this movie, but I feel like I might watch it myself again. Like you know, well, having a drink or something at some point. It's it's really been like cast aside in the canon of Hunter S. Thompson because like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and like I was watching the. Um, the, the Alex Gibney documentary Gonzo about Andres Thompson, just so I get some notes or ideas for this. That features clips from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Johnny Depp is the narrator of that movie. Like there's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is very much the like the Hunter S. Thompson endorsed depiction of his life and story. And this movie, I, I've, I had never heard of this movie until I decided, until I thought we should do Hunter S. Thompson and like, Bill Murray played him like this is like a this is like a fun cool pairing that is just kind of like vanished from cultural memory maybe because the film is like a little lackluster in its ideas but yeah um the first vignette is the 1968 in San Francisco this is why I was getting tripped up thinking that Aslan was in San Francisco it's Andres Thompson is inside of well the I don't know the opening is fucking awesome it cuts to this you don't think this movie looks good and doesn't have visual gags, Caleb? This movie has visual gags, including this one of panning over the parking lot with this convertible that is like stuck on the median leading into this mental hospital where Hunter S. Thompson has checked himself in and is like drunk out of his mind and drinking wild turkey through an IV drip yeah. while just like yelling into a microphone. You're laughing, Caleb. It's good. It's good. It's funny. It's, it's good. He's like occupied this room too. It's like he's like yeah. locked it off. Like he has everything that he needs in there. It's 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 actually kind of amazing. It's I I think a very telling joke is that the the hospital administrators are discussing amongst themselves how to deal with it. They say that he claims that he's being held captive, and then it cuts to the room where he has barricaded the door and has a. You know, him and the pretty young nurse have stuck a chair under the handle so that no one can interrupt their fun. Um, How does he get all this shit in there? (laughs) (laughs) They pull this joke a few times where they where they just kind of like cut in on something like kind of demented happening. And there's just like, how does he get all of this shit in from his busted car outside? It fucking rocks. Um, It's a good looking movie. It's a DP is Tak Fujimoto who did like all of Jonathan Demme's movies and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I think like has a really good eye for how to make a film look realistic and that it is like day-to-day items and objects, but just like have the frame pop with like a ton of color and energy without, without the camera drawing attention to itself. I disagree. I think this movie is flat. And I think especially in contrast with, uh, I think it's, I should say in, I think in most other films, this would be fine. It would be, this is a nice looking movie. Uh, I think it is, completely um 
just no attempt to in any way uh, match or interpret sort of the fevered nature of Thompson's prose, which is so uh, brimming with asides and and random quotations thrown in. Uh, I mean, it is sort of the product of someone who was conked out of his gourd writing 20 minutes before his deadline is due. Though we get lots of, you know, references to um, to the fact that, that Hunter is always missing his deadlines. There's none of that sort of slapdash quality to the filmmaking and no attempt to translate what makes him so formally radical onto the screen, which I find... I mean, I understand why. I mean, it's I'm sure it's it's tough, but just the fact that there's no attempt made is uh I think just kind of coward shit. <laughs> if if you're doing Hunter Thompson, you need to do more than just like show him doing bumps of coke, you know? Like get a little get a little kooky with it. I will hold you accountable for this when we do Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, a movie that I think uses the camera fully to try to convey that. We'll see we'll see if we get too much of a dose, but uh I don't know. This movie reminds me a lot of The Beach Bum, if either of you have seen the Matthew McConaughey. Uh, it's like my manifesto. It's like my favorite movie I've ever seen. This probably explains why I like this movie as much as I do. But like, I think that Bill Murray is successfully accomplishing the bacchanalia you need to have happen in this movie. And so I agree, Kel, that the camera isn't doing a ton of interesting things on its own. Like, you, if you put Bill Murray in a room with like different objects to play around with, whether it's just dropping too much ice inside his glass of whiskey or whatever, like it's going to be fucking funny. Like it's going to work as at least at the very least as a comedy about this man, which is maybe like a total disservice to him. But uh, sure. Uh, uh, fucking uh, Peter Boyle rolls in as Oscar Acosta. Renamed as uh, Laszlo, right? Carl Laszlo. Yes. I don't understand the rights of this movie at all because they never called Rolling Stone magazine either. So it's like some of it, they have the rights to it, some of it they don't. Like, I guess Art Linson's deal was not good enough, whatever he paid for to get the rights to this. Um, Peter Boyle is an actor I like. He's in like fucking Everybody Loves Raymond and he rocks in that. Um, Omari, a good labor movie uh, with him in it is Outlawed, or no, is it Outland? Where Sean Connery plays a sheriff on an asteroid moon colony and peter boyle <laughs> is like a corrupt union head that tries to kill him it I, fucking rocks I, I don't understand like <laughs> sort of like you know intergalactic labor law that's not <laughs> i'm sure I can that work. movie that movie arguably doesn't either like i wanted to see more <laughs> just like courtroom shit happening and probably the favorite my favorite aspect of it is that it is the future but everyone still wears like mesh trucker caps when they're in like union hall meetings still this will never go away that that makes and sense look, yeah um it's the i don't know the car with the typewriter is another good bit but they spend too much time on that joke yeah because it's good the ones to see bill murray trying to drive and type on a keyboard at the same while fucking peter boyle just sits next to him and talks <laughs> it's like <laughs> shouldn't this shouldn't this be exchanged but like they cut too much to the car like swerving around and like hitting things like it's a good joke in passing but then they make it like half a scene i think this is kind of the the best sequence in the in in the film sort of about the experience of of sort of thompson's craft and his and and the way that he approached journalism this is someone who is looking for a story who has a deadline uh and instead of writing the story is helping his lawyer who's too fucked up uh to type out his the 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 motion that he's going to be presenting in court so he is 
he is both observing and actively participating and also instigating things that allow him to further actively uh, uh, instigate. And, 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 and then, then he, he, of course, course there, there is, is the whole courtroom proceedings. Yeah, I mean, when he says, when he's, like, doing push-ups, sort of in the hall, when he says, <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I found the great story. All I have to do is write it up now. I literally, like, sort of shivered to my bone. Just, like, being a journalist and knowing, like, oh, yes, yes, the story is unfolding in front of me. And, yeah, I do actually have to write this shit at some point. Yep, that's <laughs> that's something that's going to happen. Um, I Yeah, I I mean, the I, I agree. I think the, the driving and typing went on too long. Um that being said, I was cackling the entire time. I thought it was it was pretty lovely. Uh, ultimately, sort of comes to nothing. It seems like like I thought that like, oh well, maybe the cop will chase them or something of that sort, and that didn't necessarily happen, which I'm okay with. It was long enough as is. Um, I thought that the courtroom scenes uh, outside the court and also inside the court, where you like makes the defense attorney sort of like hold his burrito and sort of walks in after a beat. Um, I, I, I thought all of that was fun and I thought it, it gave us a really good sort of look at Laszlo and sort of what he believes in and how he, and how he sort of reacts to it too. Yeah. When, when he loses the trial and basically realizes that all these hippies he's trying to kind of like cheer on and defend, like the heartbreak in his eyes, like, cause the tone of that scene is like a little off in that like, it's mostly comedy and you're watching Bill Murray do all this business with dragging his like his what the fuck is that drink called? Bloody Mary. Yeah, but he's dragging like a Bloody Mary around. So he like mostly in it as a comedy, but like, I don't know, it's just like a small beat, but like Peter Boyle is like is just like flattened in a way before then he like hops the court stand and it becomes just like madcap comedy again, like kind of to its detriment. But this is your favorite sequence though, Caleb. Yeah, I think I think it is. I think this is the kind of the only time that uh Acosta's radicalism is taken at uh is 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 not actively denigrated. I think over the course of the film he increasingly becomes a figure whose political beliefs are the subject not only of Hunter Thompson's ridicule but the audience's ridicule. He's he increasingly becomes a more disheveled and ridiculous and pathetic character. And here at in this first sequence, we see something that is undeniably just. And I think part of that is that this is a white lawyer defending nice-looking white hippies, some of whom are wearing suits uh, from, you know, the from from the tyranny of, you know, the man in capital letters and not sort of leftist Latin American guerrillas. Um, but I think, this first sequence is is the only time that's presented as not after a fall, um, and it's I think the only time that that Acosta is treated as an intellectual equal, um, or even a superior to Hunter S. Thompson. I agree with that. Yeah, I I, I, I it's it's interesting because I, I I sort of read like towards the end as like Laszlo sort of becomes at least to me it seemed like this sort of figure that like. Hunter S. Thompson uh, felt like he had sort of left behind in some ways, like the ideals they had sort of left behind, like when they're, and like, I don't know, I'm jumping ahead here, when they're standing on tarmac and he's sort of looking between the plane and his friend and all of these papers that are flying away, it seems like he sort of realizes, like, maybe I've sort of moved a little bit further away from what I wanted to do, right? Like, maybe this person actually is, uh, you know, 
it embodies, I feel like a bit more like what I wanted to do and what I thought I would be doing. Um, I agree though. I, I do think it's sort of played to the audience, especially the scene with the, the guns and things of that sort. It's played for the audience is like, look at this guy. What is he doing? Right. Um, and I do think that that courtroom scene is sort of the, the scene where we sort of get the, the initial characterization of Laszlo. And we're supposed to, you know, like this person, understand where he's coming from and how he's trying to change the system and how the system is then sort of uh, punishing him and his clients for, you know, him trying to change this for the better in a lot of ways. So I, I think you're, I think you're spot on there in a lot of ways. I am not sure if the movie thinks that Laszlo is like a figment of his imagination or not. That's what I get like hung up on in the film. I'm especially in that last scene when he shows up on the airplane after Hunter's been saying that he's dead this whole time, like, which I don't like, that's not a bad choice to make, I think, but it's also just like pretty much like unclear in the film is one of its, is one of his problems, I think. Or when he shows up in the Kentucky Derby hotel, but that's like two steps down the road from where we are now. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I sort of had that question too, right? Because like we see, even when he shows up like at the, at the hotel, we, we see the magazine above the editor. It says that he's sort of been missing for a while yeah, at yeah. that point in time, which like doesn't really line up with the timeline in real life. But I mean, it's whatever. It's a movie. But um, I'm not sure beyond this initial courtroom scene if we're supposed to believe if this is just a figment of his imagination or if this is actually happening in so many different ways. Though like it, it is like a faithful rendition of Acosta's personality in this first scene though which i stand by as like so this one i think has to be real because mm-hmm. it's too grounded in the journalism yeah. and again in like this tragedy of because even in like the rumbling and Aslan, the end of that article like acosta realizes he's losing most of the cases that he's trying to try and just like the the defeat you know it's a and that sort of that jaded figure before we re-encounter him at the at the hotel, hotel trying to train at like Super Bowl. Bowl. Should we cut ahead to that scene? The more we want to talk about with the uh, um, the courtroom here while we're on it, or no? I think we can we can we can talk about. We can move on. Does it make sense to we can we'll cut this chat out of the episode? Does it make sense to just go like bump 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 to the next like two parts probably or? Yeah, I think I think it's easy to split this movie in threes. Yeah. Yeah. This next sequence is Hunter S. Thompson gets sent to cover the Super Bowl. Uh, it's the, I'm not going to remember the two teams. That's totally out of, and neither does the movie. The Dallas Cowboys and, and the Miami Dolphins. We were talking earlier about just like sports journalism and Hunter S. Thompson. And like, I guess I didn't realize that there is like a type of political sports journalism, probably because I don't follow it very well, but like everyone's pissed that like Deadspin got killed or whatever. And so like, mm-hmm. there is this ongoing, I don't know, Caleb, am I, is this a bigger world that I've just totally missed out on? Is that there is a more political sports writing out there? Yeah, I think sort of what happened in, I mean, I, it's not just, it's not just political sports writing, but I think the advent of the blogging era of, of, of digital media, I think sort of the, the way that it explored that sports and politics and popular culture are not these things that are distinct, but all blur into each other. And also that there is no objective way to just sort of discuss what has happened on the field because sports is tied to labor and it's tied to, uh, and, and, and it's tied to politics and it's tied to finance and business and all of these things are intertwined and so should the coverage. And I think Hunter S. Thompson is in many ways sort of the, 
the 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 founding father of that of of that uh movement in a way uh that i think has you know is good if you go back and read sports writing from the 70s it's um dreadful <laughs> do you do i yeah i yeah i've i've read a little bit of you know sort of the the quote unquote great sports writers of that that era and it's uh i think especially in baseball it it all kind of leads it bleeds into this sort of this this romanticized and uh and and untrue myth of kind of american exceptionalism and american heroism and um and it's all very st- stodgy and stifling and 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 frankly inhuman uh in sort of the way that athletes are presented as figures and rather than as people and that begins to change in the in the late 60s and the 70s this is my favorite sequence of the movie actually is the is the the super bowl section where uh bill murray we he gets pulled out of this like limousine that he's in and he's i don't know he's paranoid and drunk and insane and like grabs his limo driver and like Demancy tells him where he's brought him and then he's at the hotel. I don't know. I feel like an idiot just recounting joke after joke because that's probably one of the better ways to like read this movie is as a string of jokes. But like when Bill Murray keeps looking over at the two dwarf bellhops and I think to a level that's kind of the movie eventually kind of is a little bit mean spirited in how it treats those two characters and has like there is an element of punching down but Bill Murray looking at them and like he's rediscovering them each time he notices them is like a really good verbal tick or like visual like a like little like performance tick. I think of this film, this film does a very good job of uh, portraying the passage of time. There is that sequence where the ho- he he makes his request for all of these accommodations that he needs, which is a kind of an identical setup to the hospital room that he had uh, in the first part. But then they then the hospital calls back to fake Rolling Stone headquarters and, yes, and and fake Jan Wenner, who before was dressed like kind of a beatnik, is now in a three-piece suit and the office is now, has become more corporatized um, in a way and he, and he starts turning these requests down because uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Is Bruno Kirby yeah, as I, the, as, I'm sorry to totally, but I just like, yeah, Bruno no, Kirby as the editor and like, He's what he's the he's Billy Crystal's best friend in When Harry Met Sally, and he's in a really fucking fantastic movie with Jeff Goldblum about like a uh, Village Voice, like smaller independent type newspaper that's like going under, and it follows just like the last two days of them called uh, Between the Lines. I I like Bruno Kirby a lot. I think he might be dead, but I'm not sure. Yeah, he is. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I totally interrupted someone to just yell about Bruno Kirby. Um, that was bad. Was that you, Caleb, that I was going to talk, or was that you, Omar? Sorry. I, I just, just finished, finished my point. point. Pass okay. your time, et cetera. When Thompson gets the hotel workers to play the football game inside of his hotel room, this reminded me of a story about my dad when my dad was a bellhop between college and law school, and he worked at a, at a, at a hotel in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And he got in trouble because he had the other bellhops play baseball in the hallways after hours. My dad broke a face. <laughs> yeah, I think this 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 is kind of the section of the film where it kind of the story it, it it stops becoming a 
a two-hander about Hunter S. Thompson and Acosta, and it stops even becoming really a character study of Hunter S. Thompson and kind of turns into a Bill Murray frat comedy. Um, yeah. It just, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it starts becoming, it's sort of a series of party sequences in a way that felt incredibly reminiscent of uh, Animal House, which I think we can all agree is the greatest film of the 20th century um, that has held up and uh, is a cinematic icon that we can all look to. Is that one you showed um, to your students, Omari? On like, like this is how we behave and treat each other. I mean, I, I mean, I, I will now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously taking notes here. I think you're yeah, right. I, that it, it turns into a frat copy. That's a totally valid take. Um, the sorry, I steamrolled over you, Omar. If you had you had more you wanted to say on this. I I I have a hot take actually. But oh, I went for out okay. there. I mean, Later it's. On, it's I mean, you, you guys let me speak, which is a problem in and of itself. So, uh, <laughs> so football is illogical. Like as just like again, I'm just thinking about this. Like the way that like it's it's unknowable. It's illogical. Like just how he's like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's fourth down, turnover and downs. What is football? Like what? Like in in what? Like how is this supposed to? Like the scoring system doesn't make sense. Like you. You, I you, fucking hate you, football. You get a touchdown, you get six points. Why six? Why not five? Okay, sure, six. And then if you kick it, then you get like an extra point. Why? Why is there one point? But if you do it, if you like run a different play, you get two more. Why two? Like, why are there eleven people on the field? Like, why? Why do we? Why do you have four downs? All of these numbers make no sense whatsoever. That combined with like you know the massive like issues with like how labor is used within this and uh, dare I even mention like racism and sexism and the way in which that actually goes uh those are you know obviously like ranked there but number one is that none of this makes sense to me uh i remember i, first I actually started oh sorry go ahead good i can i can give you some insight that is going to make you hate the sport even more please go for it yes <laughs> okay uh so uh football was invented as a way for the students of the ivy league who are mostly very 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 rich and very white in the 1870s to uh who missed out on the civil war to prove their manhood um so it was a very different game than the one that we have it was still 11 on 11 but it was essentially just um to just hand the ball to the biggest guy and then push and beat the shit out of him and there were a number of deaths on the field which led to some of the the first rules being put in place and then there was a coach named pop warner who ran uh a Native American re-education school. Yes, I know um, about this for Yeah, yeah. And he became an innovator, and he, so his his students, who were Native American, not white, began, 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 they started beating all the white schools, and so they increasingly added rules to make sure that those teams couldn't win anymore, and that to, to sort of reinforce sort of white dominance, and specifically white East Coast elite dominance over... Uh, over the non-white kids um so uh good sport some of these ideas are, are still prevalent in like football and sports in general right the idea of like uh savagery amongst like native people and like that's why they actually were doing well and they needed a white person or a white man specifically to sort of guide them in the way that it goes right it's the same thing that sort of happens with like black athletes right they're so athletic um, they're not very cerebral. Like it's a great like combination with this person, with this head coach, with this white head coach who then is able to sort of guide them towards what it is they need to to go to. I, I just have I, I just I, I love this idea of like you didn't get to fight in the Civil War, 
So go out on the field and prove your manhood. Like I, I love, I love the idea that like while while we're going through reconstruction, while we're figuring out who gets to vote and who doesn't get to vote, and like what states are coming back, we're like, I don't know, throw the old pigskin around and figure it out. Like you did. Like if, well, I that's mean, maybe the important thing. I'm sorry. Do you want uh, do you want the educated elite to think about the way society should be structured, or do you want them to accrue a series of head injuries? You know what? I I see your point. <laughs> I think that's valid. One hundred percent. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. By all means. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's let's have them keep doing it. There's been a lot of controversial talk on this podcast, but Omari, nothing will hurt your chances more of getting a job in an American university than talking shit about football. <laughs> I, I feel like all of the schools in the South immediately are just like off of any list right now. Just like yeah. scratch his name off, not him, anybody else. Um, on the note of getting Valor, getting Civil War Valor after the Civil War has been fought, are you familiar? Well, you obviously wouldn't be because you just met him before we started recording. But uh, Caleb, do you want to share with Omari a certain hobby you had as a young man, uh, as a Civil War reenactor? Oh, I don't have that specific one right now, but. Oh, oh, you're in Uh No, there's there's a photo of you that I have of you as like four years old in a Civil yeah, War I, uniform. I, I think I was probably 11, but yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I it was sort of one of those like historical photo reenactment, and I was um, I was tiny growing up, and so the only uniform they had in my size uh, was uh, gray. So I had to be the Confederate in the photo so, someone has to i would not call that a hobby uh, <laughs> and, that's not, and that's not going on the air <laughs> so you're gonna have to edit that out you son of a bitch this this um, needs to be in but yeah absolutely a hot just like cut it so that it's like i would call it a hobby just yeah. leave it <laughs> okay uh so we uh hunter assumption goes to the game but is uninterested in writing about it he's more interested with partying with his bellhops until his lawyer, his erstwhile lawyer, shows up on the scene and, and whisks him away. He's wearing a Nixon mask, which I take as a nod to this these parallels that Hunter S. Thompson would draw between Nixon and, and Oscar Acosta. And I don't know, there's like this certain dread that, well, it's, it comes more in the third vignette, but there is like, a, it's got that good like, oh, you old son of a bitch kind of like energy of like seeing a friend after a few years that they pull off where... Uh, Oscar is like, you got to get in the car with me, man. Like, I got to go. It's like a big deal. And you have to write about it. Um, they do the trope that this is definitely like a trope you'll see where a, a white guy in a movie will be on a bender and he will see like two random like black people on the street and like give them his car or like his hotel key or something like that. Like in Ferris Bueller, when they give the two, the, the valets, the car or whatever. Um, I do like those guys. They're pretty funny when they're throwing the party in the hotel. They're like, Hunter, we're not hunting in here. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, um, I, I cackled at the, uh, I actually wrote the line down, like, this here is a party, not a safari. And I, I laughed. <laughs> so I, I laughed harder than I had any reason to laugh. That is the tagline of this movie, is, um, I think it's, this here is a safari, oh, not course. a party. But it's the opposite or something, but yeah. I, I did love their reactions to getting all of this because it was like quintessential like black reaction to like white people giving you stuff basically for free of like is this <laughs> are you sure like this is 
this is okay. Like I, I'm, I'm not engaging in anything illegal, officer. Like you sure? It, yes, for my hat. Okay. Like it was, it was just, it was, it was very realistic to me. Octavia gives me one of those every time I try to like get her to try food or something while we're like cooking. I'm like, here, have like a spoonful of the soup to see if it's too hot. I like always get a reaction. She always thinks I'm like poisoning her, or, like pulling her into something illegal. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, a long history, so you know. Okay, this is a thread that I don't quite understand in the movie. The revolution. Like, who the fuck is Oscar supposed to be selling guns to at all? He's in this farmhouse with other hippies. They have a radio. They sell guns to... Is it revolutionaries? Is it drug dealers? Does it matter that we don't know? Well, I think I think they are intentionally trying to blur the lines. But I think sort of knowing what we know about Acosta and sort of the Chicano movement, I believe that those are... Uh, and and he makes references to, um, I think to Zapata and and to other Mexican revolutionaries. I think they are uh, Mexican leftist, maybe anarchist revolutions, probably from North Mexico, um, but are portrayed as insane warlords rather than uh, rather than real political ideologues. Um, I mean, the the leader of them is shooting guns wildly if, as if he's never seen them before he's assaulting his uh his underlings and then and then feeding him tequila it's it's i mean it's it's frankly very racist it's um i think it's it's a really a really ugly way of looking at sort of the political instability of the late 70s and 80s all of which is uh, of course uh incentivized by the united states um, and then just casting it as those wacky brown people, and I think this is, I think this is when Bill Murray's turn as sort of the frat house uh, Hunter S. Thompson starts to get like really ugly, um, and the way that he is laughing at uh, at these supposed Central American revolutionaries who are um, essentially like, f- f- clowns. Yeah, I, I didn't really know what to make of the incompetence of these people, right? Like, I, it 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 seemed a bit out of left field to me. Like the like you're talking about the scene where like he's just wildly firing this gun and not realizing if he just takes his finger off the trigger that like there are no more bullets that are going to come out. Uh, and even within the car, right, where he's just sort of smiling at Bill Murray the entire time, and like it, it just I I wasn't. It, I, I think this sort of goes back, Caleb, to, to your original point about the way that we're supposed to see Laszlo, I think, like, as this movie progresses, where he sort of becomes more and more of a laughing stock, sort of the deeper he gets into his politics and the further away from sort of the idea of the institutional uh, way that he could use his politics. And I, I, I just, I, I was I was very confused, I think, as to, like, what the movie was trying to tell me at this point in time. It's punching down for sure on this group and on this like on like the notion of political revolution at all, you know, just like it's um I think there's a Woody, it kind of reminds me there's a Woody Allen movie, I think called Bananas. I think if I've got the not to not to invoke Satan or whoever, but like Woody Allen of I mean, we've of, done uh, enough, so it's fine. Let's throw yeah. one more on the pyre, yeah. <laughs> Where he goes, I think he gets involved in a South American revolution or something, and it's like yeah, it also reminded me of Tinted Comics that I read as a young person, which is another, uh, Caleb, that's your leverage you can use on me, is that I read Tinted a lot as a kid, but... Uh, I was, fear not, fear not, so, not did so did I. I. Okay. Um, 
yeah i don't know it's racist and it is like i i that like specific interaction sits really poorly with me the scene on the tarmac is kind of cool though i kind of like when they kick off the generator and the lights go on and this weird sense of because they've set up the revolution as such a joke you're kind of stunned alongside hunter that these guys are for real to some degree and there actually is a plane that's going to pick them up or whatever uh and then just, I don't know, just like cruising off with like Laszlo and the way that he just like flies away. It's a very like, there's like a little, that's, that feels very kind of magical realism to me in a certain way of this plane that just kind of like swings in and pulls him out of the story. And I think there is, I mean, in, in the pre-production notes, I think there, I, I shat on, or I noted that people shat on the script a little bit, but I think there are, there's elements in, in this sequence of of real intelligence that I don't think um, the director, whose name I'm forgetting, uh, that I don't think Art Linson is 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 picking up on, namely that Hunter S. Thompson is asked to go with them, and he says no. And I think this is, and I think along with that sort of the visual angle of sort of the way that kind of radical media is becoming increasingly conservative and con- corporatized that Hunter S. Thompson himself is becoming is becoming more conservative and is not as... He, he has betrayed his friend. He has um, refused to go. Um, but then again, I really do think that Art Linson and, frankly, Bill Murray are, are laughing here. I don't think this is... I think this is on the page plays as betrayal and on the screen plays as the rational decision of the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, no dispute there. I think that's, yeah. Um, The third vignette is the camp trail. I mean, so I think a part of the intention of these three vignettes is try to capture like genres of Hunter S. Thompson's writing, whether it is like studying like urban injustice and unrest or sports writing or campaign trails, which is, I was, you know, free and loathing the camp trails is big book, but it's something that he's covered before. I do think the movie is good at pulling you into the weird like rituals or like routines around flying a group of journalists from campaign to campaign Um, that there is just like one plane. That's like all the stuffed shirts that of course, like Hunter S. Thompson gets thrown off of for being like a belligerent asshole uh, about Nixon. And then the next door train, the next door plane is like, the roadies of a political camp, which is like the scene I never even considered, but like, of course, there's people who have to like turn on the fucking like, make sure that the camera inside of like a shitty local diner sounds good when Nixon is giving a speech or whatever. Omar, have you ever been on a camp trail before? Uh, not as a journalist. Uh, I have as as actual sort of like political staff, and yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's not this extreme, obviously, because I wasn't doing it on a sort of presidential campaign and there was no sort of zoo. But, like, it it is sort of, like, you know, you are constantly sort of, like, segregating groups of people in this sort of way. Um, obviously, this is completely different and a bit more extreme. But it's 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 always sort of a zoo. It's always... It's always you know, not exactly what you think it's going to be. There are the people who want to be a bit more professional about things. And then there are the people that are like, you know, like I'm just advanced, right? Like I just move the tables and make sure everything's set up. So like, don't bother me. I'm going to wear a t-shirt. I'm going to wear shorts every single place that I go and, and sunglasses because, you know, 
who knows what you're doing, possibly taking pills with Hunter S. Thompson, which I have as like a note, like why would you ever take pills from Hunter S. Thompson without knowing what that was? It doesn't seem like a good thing to do. On the um, shit, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, yeah. On the like him being coming like a shitty frat guy in this movie, like roofing a random dude on a plane is like fucking up there. That's 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 <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the dude did ask for it, right? Like, I mean, like, he, he was like, let me have some of those. And he's like, okay, if you're sure. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he, he you know, he made his own decisions there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Renee. Well, so there's one exchange that I do like a lot. Because, so, like, Hunter's been booted to the roadies plane. He's sitting next to one other journalist who clearly hates being there, even though Hunter's like, this is my fucking scene. Like, everyone's, like, hanging out and, like, smoking cigarettes on the plane. But he compliments the guy. He's like, hey, like, your hair is from the, from the Washington Post. Like, you had the pulse on working class vote in Florida. Like, it's, it's a very small nod within the whole movie, but it is the sense you get that Hunter is a journalist, is enmeshed, like, is following other people's works. And then it kind of shits on it because he roofies this dude and steals his clothing. Well, I think that is that is the that is the thing again. I don't know that this is intentional, but Hunter becomes him. He's not only reading his work and doing the same job as him. He steals his clothes, takes his haircut, and pretends to be him in order to get closer to power. Um, and and then uses that same disguise and same mask to avoid uh, to avoid Acosta. Um, so I I think again subtextually. This plays as tragedy, or it reads as tragedy, but in the way that Art Linson is directing it, and it's all just a, it's just all, it's a bunch of yucks. It's, um, it's a goofy good time. But if you get it, you got it. You know, like if the movie's able to gesture enough that it sits in your brain, then it communicated that idea to you. Sure. Yeah. No. And again, I think this is this mostly comes down to I think there are enough smart people around this, and there's just like enough. Uh, there's, I think there's just like enough self-loathing in Hunter S. Thompson's work generally, and, and I think especially this obituary, that it's hard to miss that, but it is so background to what the point of the scene is, which is mostly just, uh, hijinks and then a bad Nixon impression. I thought the Nixon impression was good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an historian, an aspiring historian, so I'm more qualified to say that than you, Caleb, um, (laughs) I mean, you're twentieth. You're, you're twentieth century. I don't. I, I. I have no. I have no say on this. So. Okay. <laughs> I am not in school. <laughs> Caleb, that was like that was very dad humor, but I, I did like it kind of a lot. <laughs> it's one of the. It's. It's a moment where the movie falters, though, because there are times when the movie is trying to be kind of profound or introspective or be like. Just imagine if fucking Nixon and Hunter S. Thompson talked in a bathroom, what they'd say. And it's kind of like fucking nonsense because Nixon is just like, like fuck disadvantaged people, which is like, I don't know very much about Nixon and I could have told you that's what Nixon would say. Like, that's a very, that's not an insightful read on the guy. And also I feel like just like, as he's like taking off his clothes and like, and there's like no reaction from Nixon on this. He's just gonna, yeah. he's just like seeing this guy like taking off his clothes, and he's just like, oh yes, I'm listening to every word that you're saying, and fuck disadvantaged people. It's just like 
know like what happened to your shirt or your jacket or your your kid got taken away from you like none of this right uh which i think is is very much sort of a commentary on on nixon too right this person that just like cannot be bothered right just just not care about anything that's going on unless you're talking specifically about a policy point that he would actually like say something about right so it's I, I it's another one though that I think Caleb you're right it's it's just sort of played for laughs but I think there's there's something more that could have been done there um, and I feel like it's sort of a missed opportunity right so I mean this film comes out in 1980 Watergate broke eight years ago I mean your your big takeaway from the Nixon years is like this guy was an asshole <laughs> come on <laughs> that's what you got that's sure okay I agree you know. Acosta rolls up on the plane like this is I mean, and this is when I think he's fully become just like a figment of Hunter S. Thompson's imagination. Like he's in a white suit. He kind of looks like a French fry. He has like a yellow tie and a red <laughs> shirt underneath. Um, but he just like you see him stride into the plane and Bill Murray's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And like terrified of this. Like, whether it is, like, a person that he's left along with his past or it's an actual, like, figment of himself that he's trying to kind of suppress and hide away. Um, before Acosta gets on the plane and sits next to him and gives him this crazy pitch about buying up a bunch of land somewhere to, like, make a new way, you know? The Jacksonian dream, I think, or at least the libertarian one. It's sort of weirdly an arc of Chicano activists at this time, however, is the way that there's that basically like failing to achieve monumental political goals. They kind of atrophy and become these sort of weird diabolical like figures that become kind of obsessed with holding parcels of land. Like Cesar Chavez at the end of his life is basically running this ranch where he has a bunch of non-union labor, just like building stuff for him and having these almost like cult like dynamics that he's sort of fostering between different like, idealistic young people that see him as this great figure and he's um there's a good book from from matt garcia about this topic but like how this is like weird sort of cult dynamics and then omari i was thinking of lauren uh, lorena orapez's book on um i'm gonna get that guy's name wrong it's not tijerina it's tijerina i think yeah reyes i think it is yeah who's yeah like another a much less well-known but chicano activist but one who gets like also like deals with like serious mental illness and becomes just like an absolute kind of like tyrant to the people that follow him. I mean, it's, it's pretty common. I feel like in sort of any sort of revolutionary moment, right. I mean, after reconstruction sort of starts petering out, like black people start looking towards the West. Right. Um, like there's Joseph Rainey, who's a congressman from South Carolina who uh, eventually leaves in sort of late uh, 19th century. Uh, and is encouraging black people to move to Kansas. Because uh, he's basically saying, like, there's tons of land here. We can buy up land. We can sort of live in sort of collectives. Uh, basically, an uh, acknowledgement that uh, the revolution or changing things in the way that they thought that they could just did not work, right? It had not worked. So now the only other way to actually to try to have any sort of power is to have land, right? And to be able to affect change that way. Um and a lot of it, I think, sort of comes down sort of like these pictures that, that uh, Acosta is sort of showing, right? Like just, it's dirt, it's rocks, there's nothing here. And his, and his vision is, you know, like, we'll, we'll build, right? Like that's what we can do. 
and I and I guess for me it's it sort of seems like um like Hunter S. Thompson at this point in time just to sort of lost some of that imagination that I think sort of goes back to our conversation about sort of wanting to be a bit more institutionalized, right? Like there's he doesn't have that imagination. And Costa is trying to get him to to really think creatively about what could be built upon this place. And he's sort of saying, you know, but there's something already built here that I feel like I can be a part of as opposed mm. to trying to build something new and something different. Amari, you, you were talking about sort of Western expansion, sort of the in the petering out of radical movements, uh, land becomes increasingly important. Yeah, and I mean, it, it sort of becomes important at the beginning too, right? Like there's like, uh, I'm, I'm going to rant about this, I'm sorry. Um, towards the end of, uh, of the Civil War, like as like, uh, um, uh, it's not Grant, is it Sherman? Sherman is like marching through like uh, Georgia, just sort of like scorching earth, right? And he has this large group of like um, black refugees essentially that are following him. They have a meeting at a church essentially and uh, the Secretary of War Stanton comes down and they ask them these questions with all of these leaders. And uh, one of the things that a lot of the uh, black leaders that are there say is that it's like, we need land, right? Like our, they're, they're sort of articulating this understanding of like, land is freedom. Like we've been able, to, we've been working this land for so long and we've never gotten anything from it. And we see everybody else that has forced us to work this land are clearly like doing very well for themselves, right? So land is part of, you know, part of freedom. And that's sort of how we sort of articulate and sort of comes back up with the Knights of Labor, this like labor movement um, that happened sort of in the late 19th century uh, where the exact same sort of articulation of things are there, right? That like, you know, the idea of like Marx's idea of like those who, you know, are sort of working the land sort of deserve sort of the fruits of the labor from it. It's the same sort of thing that sort of comes with the Knights of Labor where they're very clear about the idea that like this land then needs to be cut up. It should not be just in the hands of these oligarchs essentially, right? So, and it, it sort of becomes then a return to this idea uh, with black people sort of encouraging people from the South to move away from sort of Jim Crow as it's sort of becoming a bit more calcified and to move to the West where they can be free because they can buy land, right? Even even coming in together sort of collectively to buy land. Um, and I think that that's part of what we're seeing. Uh, I think, Frank, like you were talking about, we're sort of people that were involved in the Chicano movement, then sort of looking for these places to buy land, believing that we can sort of start a new way and live in a different way in, on this land that then would be ours. Well, I mean, and it's the title think- of... Well, it's the title of the movie, Where the Buffalo Road, you know, like it's from Home on the Range. There is this sort of frontier settling vision kind of implicit in the movie. And I guess the sense being that, especially with this extended metaphor of Oscar Acosta as like, as a buffalo, that like there is no place for them to roam, that they like that whatever country, like the landscape has shifted underneath their feet, sort of. Well, I, I think what's interesting, because I mean, I could be wrong, I I. I mean, I I did a little bit of reading about Acosta's politics, but I don't think his, I don't think he was a uh, a Brian Jones figure, a sort of twentieth century neo colonialist, and it, it, he was a uh, Chicano nationalist and I believe a Chicano separatist, but I believe it was within the United States. I mean, his thing was like, I'm going to get a million buffaloes together and we're going to apply for nationhood and then I'm going to leave and return to Mexico and and write my own book. But I think he would leave and not the Chicano people would. So 
I don't know. It's you know, adaptation is adaptation. They don't need to reflect the guy's politics uh, exactly. But Jones, I think. I mean, I think this is kind of probably a callback in the contemporary imagine, imagination to Jonestown, which was seventy eight. Uh, I can't remember what, but that was sort of a a leftist separatist movement that went down to South America, uh, and of course ended in tragedy. And I have to imagine that that is kind of the idea of separatism being presented here as, you know, this idea of building a new land as, as folly. And I think again, sort of an idea, an idea to, to ridicule. And I think Bill Murray is presented as, as correct in, in rejecting this plan with, with a woman pre-selected to him and, and land that's going to, you know, grow shitty weed. Cause that's, you know, his number one priority. Um, so again, I just, I think it's, I, this is again, a betrayal and a spurning of, of Hunter S. Thompson's radical roots and his radical friends, but it is again, presented as sort of the smartest man doing the smartest thing rather than sort of a profound betrayal of, of not just not just a profound personal betrayal, but sort of a betrayal of the bedrock of the idea of Hunter S. Thompson. But then are we supposed to take from this where he sort of does this glancing back and forth between the train and his friend trying to get these papers and then ultimately decides to help his friend? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to think that this is a return to sort of how he was before? Because I, I, I feel like that's what they're sort of hinting at. But I'm not necessarily sure that that's ultimately what we get when we return to the framing story. Yeah, I think it's just a gesture of loyalty, you know, that like he won't leave his friend papers to blow away. But yeah, he's back in Aspen. He's with the dog. Like, I think it's I think it's worse than that. It's a, it's an act of pity. Um, and then from that, we we directly get him sort of writing the last lines of this obituary and said this was a man, a giant who stomped on the earth. And it rings so fucking hollow when this film has made Acosta become so small um, where he needs a white man to bend over and pick up his papers for him because he's too feeble and pathetic to do it himself. That's a great point. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Okay. 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 Sounds good. I'm going to put on my game show host voice now. Omari and Caleb, we have spent this hour plus talking about Hunter S. Thompson and the portrayal of him in this film by comedy legend Bill Murray. Bill Murray is, of course, an iconic performer with a career that spans several decades and includes everything from lowbrow comedy to introspective art house films. While often the star of his movies, Bill Murray is also an ensemble figure who has worked with a wide variety of people in Hollywood. And so for this game show, I will be testing to see if you could tell me who has or has not worked with Bill Murray. Omari and Caleb, I will go back and forth between you naming uh, different people in Hollywood. You'll have to tell me whether they have or have not worked with Bill Murray. The name of this game show is Flurry of Murray. I see what you did there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Omari is our guest. You're going to go first. So the first name I have for you is Scarlett Johansson, the Black Widow herself. Scarlett Johansson never worked with Bill Murray. Yes. Okay. Do you want to say which one or just like? Uh, I believe that's lost in translation. Right? It is. Okay. All right. So I've started to meet. Okay. Caleb. I often try to sabotage Caleb in these, so we'll see if I've pulled it off here or not. Caleb, Bruce Willis. Has Bruce Willis ever worked with uh, Bill Murray? Uh, yes, Moonlight Kingdom. 
fuck that's another one dude Wes Anderson like kind of fucked this game for me because of how big the fucking (laughs) yeah because I the one I had identified was Rock the Casbah where Bill Murray is like a producer trying to put on (laughs) no one has seen that fucking movie I know I thought I thought I gave you yeah fucking Bill Murray okay uh Omar Tom Hanks has Tom Hanks ever done a Bill oh shit um I'm gonna say no you're correct Oh. I could not find, and again, I, I've done this game show before. It's ultimately easier to find movies where people have been together than to conclusively prove that two people have never worked together. But as far as I can tell, Tom Hanks and Bill Murray have never made a movie together. Um, the score is tied. Well, no, it's Omar's up to two points. Caleb, you're at one. Caleb, Idris Elba. Has Idris Elba ever done a movie with Bill Murray? Um if they had, it would be in the last couple of years, but I think Bill Murray increasingly only works with a few directors. I don't think they've worked together. You're wrong. They are both in the Jungle wow. Book remake that John Favreau did. Oh, voice. That doesn't fucking count. Fuck you. <laughs> Omar has taken... Animation doesn't count. Animation is not art. Fuck you. <laughs> wow, hot takes. Stop uh, the count. Omar. Stop the count. <laughs> Omari, has, has Lawrence Fishburne ever worked with Bill Murray? Oh, fuck. Um, I'm going to say yes. I, I, I don't know what movie it would be, but I'm going to say yes. Omari, you're correct. They are oh. both in Osmosis Jones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. got it, yeah. This doesn't count animation. No, Bill Murray <laughs> does act in that movie. Bill Murray is the body. Oh, Bill, oh, Murray yeah, is, yes. Bill Murray plays the setting of that movie, I guess, technically. So, Lawrence Fishburne voicing the virus, the evil virus, I believe, in, uh, in Osmosis Jones. Okay, so the score is now... Omar is up with three points to Caleb's one. Yikes, Caleb. Let's see if you can bring it back. Uh, Caleb, has Nicole Kidman ever done a, a movie with Bill Murray? Cole Kidman, I think, again, they're on different wavelengths, and I'm going to say no. You are correct. I have not been able to find a movie that Nicole Kidman and Bill Murray did together. Omari, has Kid Rock ever done a movie with... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Uh... God, now I have to think about if Kid Rock has done movies. This is is like nightmare making here. (laughs) Um... I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna say no. They were both in Osmosis Jones. <laughs> Kid Rock having a cameo as musician Kidney Rock in Osmosis Jones. Jones. Oh. Kelly, <laughs> you have a chance to gain here. Has John Williams? Has John Williams ever? I will say, has John Williams ever participated in a movie? So scoring or performing? John Williams ever? The composer John Williams. The composer John Williams. Ever heard of him? Uh, I that man has composed 187 scores, so I imagine one of them would have starred Bill Murray, but I can't say which. I couldn't find one. Uh, I could oh not my find god! One. Fuck you. The closest I have is when um, Bill Murray is the lounge lizard in the SNL skit singing the Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> Nothing but Star Wars. Okay, Omar retains the lead with three to Caleb's two. Omar has Rosie O'Donnell. Oh, fucking A. Uh, 
I'm going to say yes. Incorrect. They've never done a movie together as far as I could tell. Okay. But I think it might have been in those years where Bill Murray was studying at the Sorbonne when he just like left to get a PhD in philosophy in France for a few years. That might have been like, he might have been literally out of the country and out of the film industry while Rosie O'Donnell was like having her time in the sun. Well, so, she had a career. Yeah. Caleb, yeah. okay, what about Marlon Brando? Has Marlon Brando ever worked with Bill Murray? Oh, this is really hard. Marlon Brando made a lot of shit at the end of his career. Um, and was a figure of ridicule that I think Bill Murray would have leapt at the chance to do. But I can't think of a movie where they would have crossed over. I'm going to say no, but I think I might be wrong. You're correct. I could not find a movie that Bill Murray and Marlon Brando did together. I bet he was lampooned on SNL at some point. Likely enough. Um, You're tied up at three points here. Uh, Omari, we'll go to you. Uh, George Clooney. Has George Clooney ever done a movie with Bill Murray? I'm just thinking right now of blowing a 3-1 lead. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say... Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that one. Yeah. Yeah. George Clooney is in. Correct. George Clooney is in the a uh, very Murray Christmas. They're both playing themselves. It's Sofia Coppola's weird satire of Christmas specials, and they sing "Santa Claus Wants Some Lovin'" together at the end of that movie. That's a very weird movie. I kind of recommend. I kind of like it a lot. But it's like it's it's like sort of insane that it exists. Um, <laughs> Caleb, has Bob Hoskins ever done a film with Bill Murray? Bob Hoskins. Oh, those are a couple of 1987 ass dudes. Um, <laughs> I have to imagine in some in some comedy that doesn't exist anymore, Bob Hoskins shows his face. Maybe even What About Bob, but I don't think he's in that one. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what about Bob Hoskins. He is in Garfield, The Tale of Two Kitties, alongside. <laughs> do you know the story about um? Do you know Bill? Well, this could be totally apocryphal, but do you know? Uh, um, I do, but say that it's so fucking funny. Bill Murray's explanation for why he signed up to be in Garfield is because the um, the screenwriter that was. Uh, he he said he didn't read the script. He was just presented with a movie called Garfield, and the the screenwriter was by a guy named, I think, just Joe Cohen. And he was like, "I love the Cohen brothers. They must have some weird take on Garfield." And he signed up sight unseen, <laughs> and then he, he uh, made two Garfield movies. And it's not, it's not <laughs> the Cohens. I love that story. <laughs> Okay, so if I've done my scoring right, I think you're both tied at four, which means we have to go to a Zodiac sign tiebreaker. So you're both going to name what you think Bill Murray's Zodiac sign is, and whichever one of you is closest to it on the wheel wins the, wins the, wins the game show. Caleb, I will give you first guess. No, wait, does that make... No, I'll give Omari first guess, because Omari had first guess in the game. Uh, huh. I'm going to go Leo. Okay, Mario's gone with Leo. How about you, Caleb? Well, he's kind of a... He's kind of a... He's, he's got a reputation of, of being a little bit demanding, having a little bit of a temper. Um, so I'm going to say maybe even a little bit venomous um, in the way he talks to people. So I'm going to say he's a Scorpio. Ah. 
Caleb, you're very close with Scorpio, but unfortunately you are not as close as Omari with Leo. Omari is a Virgo, which is just the one over from Leo. Well, I will. Omari spent more time in California. He's more attuned to astrology. You know, I think it is <laughs> logical. That's how it works. I think, you know, my time in the sun has ended, so I will be leaving the country and uh, forming a uh, a commune of my own. Try not to laugh at me. Caleb, if you do that, I will send you a, uh, a lifetime supply of Kool-Aid, but it'll be pretty short for you, I think. <laughs> um, uh, Omar, Caleb is good. Oh, I was just going to say, I did not blow a 3-1 re- lead. I am I am not the Warriors, so I, I feel good. <laughs> I feel good. Oh, we haven't done a game show in a minute on the show, so thank you for humoring me on that. Okay. Omari, you're a, a very... A very clever fellow. You uh, know a lot about uh, journalism and history and uh, uh, and uh, certainly know much more than us. But the time has come for you to debase yourself and condense all of your very serious thoughts and opinions about Hunter S. Thompson and about where the buffalo roam into a single word and several supporting sentences. Is where the buffalo roam a adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you feel a little sad adaptation? Perhaps steaming mad adaptation. Any variation thereof. Omari Averett Phillips, what do you think? I, okay, I will say it's a bad ab- adaptation. <laughs> now, I will say it's it's fun. It's like so bad it's fun. Like have a drink, watch it, enjoy it, but just don't take it too seriously. It's not It's not great. Hell yeah. Frank, how about you? So, look, I don't think this film ultimately does justice to the writing and reputation and maybe even place of Hunter S. Thompson in 70s counterculture, but I think Bill Murray is unlikable in this film. There are subtexts, if you want to identify them, about kind of atrophy and counterculture-ism and Hunter S. Thompson's kind of position and seeing all of that happen. It's a good looking movie from Tak Fujimoto. I think it's the good supporting turns from a lot of different fun members of this cast. So I'm going to give it a not half bad adaptation. Like it's, it's, it's a succeeds as a comedy for me. And that was, that's enough. I think Caleb, uh, bring the hammer, let it, let it loose. You know, you have not enjoyed this film. Let's hear it. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there are moments when this film is undeniable. It is, it is a good time. There's good bits. It's got a good leading performance of, from Bill Murray. Um, that said, what it's not is Hunter S. Thompson. So this, to me, is a frat adaptation. It's taking the bare bones of uh, an extraordinary journalistic and literary figure and fitting him into the structure of a national lampoon comedy. Um, and it's taking the story of a complex and troubled and fundamentally tragic relationship between a radical and the journalist and friend who let him down and turning it into, to use the parlance of SNL, two wild and crazy guys. (laughs) And I think it is fundamentally a letdown, if not a work of total incompetence. Um, So it is a frat adaptation. Damn. Bringing the uh, heat. Omari Averett Phillips, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show here. Is there anything that you would like to plug and promote to our listeners now? Oh, why do I do this to myself? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at Omari A underscore P. 
where I will be talking about uh, terrible Netflix movies that I watch. I just did a long stream of consciousness on Tinder Swindler, which is continuing. I, I follow that news. Uh, and then there's also history stuff, too. Uh, so, yeah, follow me there or don't follow me. I don't, I don't give a fuck. Like, what? Like, I don't know you. <laughs> Thank you to Slow Your Roll for our theme song. Thank you to Zach Sisk for our artwork. Thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Um, I have no send-off. I am in, I am, I'm getting fucking pressed to shit on trying to get papers done, so I can't come up with anything funny except that I'm probably going to have to write in the car while driving uh, to do errands like Huntress Thompson does in this movie. Uh... Bye, everybody. We'll see you next week for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Donnie Morrison.